You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. All right, it's good to see you this morning. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. That is where we're going to be. In that video, just uh, if you're new with us today, this is your first time to be at Stonegate, kind of is introducing you to a set of sermons that we're in called All In. And this set of sermons in particular is really introducing our entire church family to um, a two-year generosity initiative. And from day one, we have said that this generosity initiative is not primarily about generosity. The primary goal of this generosity initiative is putting ourselves in a position for the Lord to teach us what it means to walk by faith, what it means to take all of our life, push it all in with Jesus and learn to see what it means in our life to venture all with God. That's the number one goal that we have in this generosity initiative. And here's the great thing among our church family. That is actually happening. Like people are really learning this. We have so many great stories of the Lord doing so many really, really, really good things in the heart of our people. And on our website, you can go to stonegate-church.com forward slash all dash in. So our website with the forward slash all dash in. It's on the back of your little all in booklet. Um, there's a place where you can click on the Get Involved little link there, and that will take you to share your story. And we would love to hear your story about what the Lord is up to in your own heart. Here's one of the stories that we got this week. This is from a 40-something-year-old man. He said this, As I've been thinking about what it means to be all in for Jesus and the city, this week's message on stewardship, talking about last week, blindsided me. All week, the light in my mind has been getting brighter with the absolute truth that God owns it all, and that I literally don't own anything. What an amazing shift. All of my life, I have, I've had the perspective that the things that God brings into my life are his gifts to me, and I have received them the same way I receive a birthday gift. I've been careful to give thanks to the giver and even give back a portion of his gifts, but make no mistake about it, I viewed ownership of these gifts as mine to do with as I pleased. Now, after years of hearing it said that God owns it all, I finally get it. Since he owns it all, I own none of it. I am free to truly live open-handedly. Even greater is the realization that the truth applies to every aspect of my life, not just money. He has entrusted me with a body, a marriage, children, business, skills, time, and money. Since recognizing that they all belong to him, I have a renewed fervor to work harder parent better, love and nurture my wife, manage my time better, and take care of my body without duty or obligation, but because I am so grateful for the opportunity to steward them. And it's just like, man, if we could have that story replayed like about a thousand times, this would be such a win. But the Lord is up to doing those sorts of really great things among our church family. So we would love to hear about yours. So if you don't mind going to the website and filling that out, that would be great. It'd be really encouraging for the rest of our church family. And before we jump in, let me remind you of this all-in booklet. You should have a book like this. If you don't have a book just like this, you can raise your hand right where you are, and we will have some guys deliver a book right to your seat to you. So you don't have to be bashful. Just raise your hand right where you are. They will deliver this book to you. So just keep your hand up and they will get to you. So it may take them just a second, but just go ahead and keep that book up. And uh, let me just remind you that I think it's page 49 is where we're going to be today. Yep, nope, page 47. That is your week, uh, the, your sermon notes for this week's sermon, All In Generosity. So you can turn to page 47 and have that out and, and ready to go. And last thing about that book, uh, let me just encourage you, please read that book. I've been asked a lot of questions over the last couple of weeks that is in, the answer to them is in that booklet. So if you'll just make sure that you read that book, that you're familiar with everything in there, I read it word for word. Just take a moment and read from front to finish the entire book. And that way you are completely up to date with the, the core kind of pieces of information that you need to know um, if you're a part of this church family. So if you'll please do that, that would be great. So page 47, that's where you need to be. So we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me just kind of set that up by uh, just helping you remember where we've been thus far. So week one uh, of this set of sermons, we talked about being all in with Jesus, what it means to push your life in with him, like Peter in Luke chapter 5. Week two, we were in Matthew chapter 25, and we talked about being all in as stewards. Like what does it mean to view all of our life as um, being entrusted from the Lord, and then we are stewards of the Lord to, to leverage our life for his mission and his causes and his concerns in the world. And this week, we're gonna be all in with generosity. That's the topic, all in with generosity. And 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is our text. 
Now, when it comes to um, giving, let's just talk about generosity for a minute, just kind of zoom out and talk about it from the Bible's kind of big angle point of view. The Bible does not treat money and possessions as a peripheral issue in our life. It's not like just something out there that the Bible gets to periodically. It is soaked throughout the Bible. In the Bible, there are 2,350 verses that deal with money and possessions. 2,350 verses. If you combine all the verses that deal directly with prayer and with faith, directly with those two things, if you combine all of those, there are twice as many verses that deal directly with money and possessions as with prayer and faith. I mean, it is a big issue in the Bible. Now, I think it begs the question, why would God give so much real estate in the Bible to the issue of money and possessions? Why would God do that? I mean, the real estate in the Bible is a really precious thing. You just have so long to cover all the things you're gonna cover. Why would God give so much real estate to money and possessions? I think this is the answer to that question. I think the reason that our good daddy gives so much real estate to money and possessions in the Bible is because he knows that money and possessions is a ruthless competitor for the affections of our heart. I think it's the reason that so much real estate is given in the Bible to money and possessions is because God is a good dad to us. He's a good dad. And he knows that money and possessions will be a ruthless competitor for our affections. He knows that. Therefore, he talks about it consistently. He doesn't just leave us to kind of fend for ourselves. He talks about it over and over, 2,350 times in the Bible, over and over because he loves us. He wants, to share, he wants to warn us, first of all, of the dangers of money and possessions, but he wants to direct us. He wants us to know his will and heart for how money and possessions should be used, for what he thinks about money and possessions. So that leads into 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, which in the Bible is the longest and richest section on giving in the Bible. The longest and richest section. So just to provide you with the context of these two chapters, Paul is on his third missionary journey. So he is making his journey a, a kind of a through the churches that he has formally planted. He's somewhere in Macedonia, probably in Philippi, and he's riding from Macedonia back to, to the church in Corinth. And here is his goal in these two chapters, chapters eight and nine. He is trying to stir them up to give generously. If you have an ESV version right above chapter eight, you'll see something like encouragements to giving. His goal is to take the Corinthian church and to encourage them to give generously to the causes and concerns of God. That's his main purpose here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Now, there is way more in these two chapters than I can get to, but I want to take the first nine verses of chapter 8, and I want to point out five things about Christians and giving. So five things out of the first nine verses of chapter 8, 2 Corinthians 8, about Christians and giving. So let's start in verse 1. 2 Corinthians 8, starting in verse 1, says this. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, you might underline severe test of affliction, they are suffering for Jesus. Their abundance of joy, you might underline abundance of joy, so severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, and their extreme poverty, you might underline extreme poverty. So you've got a church that is suffering for Jesus' sake, that is destitute, that's poor. In, in those circumstances, they have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So now think about what's happening. Paul is using a poor and persecuted church, and they are like poor, poor. It's not just they're in poverty, it's extreme poverty. They are suffering for Jesus' sake. So they are poor and persecuted. And Paul is using a poor and persecuted church's example of generosity, and he's encouraging a wealthy Corinthian church toward giving. Do you see the dynamic? He's saying, man, look at these Macedonians. These guys are crazy. Man, they, they are suffering, they're destitute, they're poor, and look at the way that they're giving. And he's using their giving as a model to encourage the Corinthian church. It would be as if God um, went and grabbed a homeless person in downtown Fort Worth, had nothing. They don't have a bank account. They don't have like things stored up for the future. They don't have anything, and, but they're givers. And God taking that man and setting him on the stage and saying, hey, um, generally wealthy suburbanite culture, let this be a model of what giving looks like. Let, let this be your model. Let, let me tell you about this guy and then give like this guy's giving. That, that's what he's doing with the Macedonian church. And then you get to verse three and here's the first thing we learn about giving. Verse three, the first three words, for they 
gave. First three words, for they gave. Here's the first thing we learn about Christians and giving is that Christians give. Number one, Christians give. Generosity is the reflexive response of a heart that has been rescued by Jesus. Generosity is the reflexive response of hearts that have come alive to Jesus. It's the reflexive response to those things. For they gave. That should, those three words, for they gave, should be a summary statement of a Christian's life. It should like sit over the top of a Christian's life as one way to describe the totality of their life. For they gave, and we're talking about everything. For they gave their time, for they gave their energy, for they gave their emotional capacity, for they gave their skills, for they gave their houses, for they gave their cars, for they gave their possessions, for they gave their money, for they gave their life, for they gave everything. That should be the summary statement over their life, for they gave. The particular context here in 2 Corinthians 8, though, is money and possessions. For they gave money and possessions to the cause of Jesus. For they gave. Now, here is where we walk into the problem, though. Most people in America who self-identify as Christians do not give. So if the summary statement is, for they gave, that is what Christians do. Man, this is, this is who they are. This is what they're doing in every little moment of their life. The problem is, in America, people who self-identify as Christians, that is not true for them. A guy named Christian Smith, um, he is a Christian sociologist. He's done a lot of work in a lot of different areas in the church. Um, but one area that he's done work on is in giving. So he's taken kind of the American church as a whole and, and done a ton of research on the patterns of giving in the American church. And he condensed all that research into a book called Passing the Plate. And here are three things that he found in that book. Number one, he found that one of four self-identified Christians give nothing. So one in four people who self-identify as Christians, they don't give anything to Jesus. One in four. So if we just divided this room in four, one-fourth of this room, according to these statistics of the American church, would not give anything to the causes and concerns of Jesus. Everything terminates on them. Then here was the second discovery. A vast majority of Christians give very little. So if one-fourth give nothing, a vast majority give next to nothing. And I'm talking it's just like right next to nothing. So uh, people who self-identify as Christians, here's what he found. That the median giving is 0.62%. So if you take all the people giving in the American church and you just like grab, like all these people are on the graph and you just find the middle person on that graph and grab that one, that's median giving. The median giving in the American church is 0.62%. That is 62 cents per, one, per every $100 that would come into them. 0.62%. That, that's the, the median. That's where most people, that's like half of the whole church gives less than that. This is the median range. Then the average, so you just take everyone that's giving, and we're going to put it all in one ball and take the average of it, is 2.45%. So he, he's just helping us get a clue as of most people who self-identify as Christians, fourth give nothing, and the vast majority give right next to nothing, very, very little. Now, and here's one of his quandaries in even doing the research. He's like, part of what makes me skeptical of even the numbers that I'm getting is that most people way overestimate their giving. So if, if they're just going to be asked the question, how much am I giving percentage-wise, they're going to way overestimate how much that is. So if we just took it in this room and somebody asked you the question, chances are you would not be thinking everything the Lord has given me, paycheck, insurance, benefits, whatever all of those things are, everything the Lord's given me, let, let me give that percentage. You're probably going to way underestimate on, on how much that you're actually giving. So he's finding that very few, the, the very few, you know, one out of four give nothing, the vast majority give very little. And then he found this, and I thought this was interesting. This is just kind of dealing with earning and giving. You know, most of us would think that the more you earn, the, the, the more that you would give, like the bigger percentages you would give when you, when you earn more. I mean, I think most of us kind of buy into the general belief that like, man, if we won the lotto, then everybody would be rich around us because we'd be giving it all away. And he's like, probably not to that. That's probably not true. He found that, that actually the more people earned, the less percentage-wise they gave. I'm going to say that one more time. He found that the more people earned, the less percentage-wise they were willing to give of what they earned. He, he tracked dollar-for-dollar dollar giving compared, now compared to uh, people in the Great Depression, uh, Christians in the Great Depression. So let's just 
Equalize inflation, the dollar means the same thing, and here's what he found. Dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than they give today. And here's the point of all that. Having more won't make you more generous. Chances are you will not be more generous if you just had more things. You would want to use, just like you're doing now, more of those things on yourself. Having more does not mean you're going to be more generous. And this goes back to last week. It's the same sort of an idea of like, man, if the Lord gives you a little, if you've got $100 in your pocket, how you steward that is setting yourself up for how you're going to steward $100,000 if the Lord gave you that. And if you're faithful in a little, it's chances are the Lord's going to give you more to steward and the more to be faithful with. But, but the more you make does not equal, the, you know, you giving more. So in light of that, in, in light of the, the truth is self-identified Christians, they're, they're not giving. If this should be the summary statement, for they gave, that's just not true in the lives of so many people who call themselves Christians. Now, I, I think it just begs the question. If, if that is true about giving in the American church, what is that saying about the heart of the American church? If, if Matthew 6 is true, that where your, you know, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you just follow kind of what you do with your money, there's your heart tracking right behind it. What is that saying about the heart of the American church? I just think it's very fair to probably say something like this. It is saying that the heart of the American church has been seduced by a million other lovers, by just lesser loves. Now ask yourself the question, look at your giving. What does your giving say about your heart? Does the way you give, just like it does for the kind of the big picture American church, might it say, does it say, this is just a good, you evaluate your own heart question. Does it say that, man, your heart is in with Jesus, fully captured and prizing Jesus? Or is it telling you, is it a warning sign in your life that's alerting you to your heart has been seduced by lesser things? Here's the first thing we learn about Christians in giving is that Christians give. Here's the second thing we learn about Christian giving. Look at verse three again. For they gave, the summary statement, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Second thing we learn about Christian giving is that Christians not only give, but they give sacrificially. Now, there is a devastating myth that just run rampant in the American church that says something like this, and this is the best way to get at the myth. If somebody were to ask you the question, how much of the money and possessions that you have, like they are currently in kind of your possession, how much of those money and possessions is God concerned about? I think the overwhelming majority of people would say 10%. That God is concerned about 10%, and then he's looking at the other 90 and just saying, whatever you want to do with those, great, go get about it. And I just want to just as clearly as I can have a moment where we recognize that is not true. God owns it all, and there will be a day where we have to give account for it all. God's entrusted everything that comes into our household. God has entrusted all of that to us. And one day I've got to answer not just for 10% of it, but for the whole 100% of it. Now, I think the reason that the 10% idea is deeply embedded is because of a word called the tithe. So I just want to unpack a few things around the tithe. In the Old Testament there were three sorts of giving that people did. On an annual basis, the Lord, this was obedience in the Old Testament. This was part of the tithe system of the Old Testament. People would give 10% to the priest and to the whole kind of sacrificial system. So the whole system of sacrifices, all that was going on. So 10% annually would go to the priest and that whole system. Then you would have another 10% that would be on an annual basis that would go to support the feast and festivals that the people of Israel would have. So that's 20% per year, per family in the Old Testament. Then every third year, there would be a requirement of 10% to help the poor and needy. So if you just do that on an annual basis, that would be 23.3% a year that would be going into kind of the whole tithing sort of a system in the Old Testament. So that's the Old Testament. Now let's bring that idea into the New Testament and try to get our bearings on it. In the New Testament, Jesus commends the tithe in, in Matthew chapter 23. He commends it. It's a good, honorable, worthy thing. He commends the tithe, but he never commands the tithe. Instead of talking about like percentages in the New Testament or like give this percent or that percent, that's not the way Jesus addresses it. In the New Testament, it's not addressed with a percentage. It's addressed by sacrifice. So if we're just saying it as clearly as I can say it, sacrifice is the New Testament standard of giving. 
Sacrifice is the New Testament standard of giving. So maybe you could just think about giving in three different ways. If you just want to put it in three categories, you could think about giving in these three categories. There is, there's a way of giving that is less than your ability. So if God entrusts this amount of money and possessions and things to you, there is a way of giving that is well below that, just giving below what the Lord's entrusted. That's one way. And that would be the, the vast majority of Christians in America fall into that category of giving below their ability. Then you've got the second category. It is giving according to your ability. So if the Lord entrusts you with this, it's like it's matching what the Lord has entrusted to you. So there's, there's some sort of proportionality to it that it's giving according to your ability. And there would be a few people in the American church that would kind of fit on this sort of a scale of, of giving according to, to your ability. Then there's a third category of giving. And this is where this passage is, is moving us. It is giving beyond our ability. So if this is what the Lord entrusts to us, it's giving like that in light of this is what the Lord's entrusted to us. It's giving beyond our ability. And this is that uncharted water that, uh, you know, of sacrificial giving in the Bible. Beyond your ability is taking us into that place of sacrifice, that place of faith. Now, this is exactly what Paul in this passage is encouraging us toward. He's taking the Macedonian church and he's saying, do you see the way that they're giving? They are like poor, poor. They're like down there poor. They're way poor. And do you see how they are giving not just according to their ability, they are giving beyond their ability. And then he's looking at the Corinthian church and saying, let's give like that. This is the sort of way that I want you to give. And by nature that he's looking at you and I, and he's looking at Stonegate saying, Stonegate, you see the Macedonian church. This is the way that I want you to give sacrificially. Beyond, you know, beyond your ability. It's that sort of giving. Sacrificial giving is giving in such a way that it cuts deeply into your daily life. See, the Macedonian Christians, they were not saying, hey, I've got a spare dollar, I'll give a spare dollar. They were saying, no, I'm gonna have to dig into my life and create a spare dollar, and then I'm gonna give that. That's sacrificial giving. It's, it's giving in such a way that it cuts deeply into daily life. Sacrificial giving is giving in such a way where, it, where it's beyond the numbers. Like, it, 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 you know, for the Macedonian Christians, they're not saying, man, if I just gave, in light of God giving me this, if I gave this, then I could kind of work this out, work that out, and then I'd have all that figured out, and then I'd be good to go. It's like, no, it, it doesn't work that way. Sacrificial giving is like, here's what the Lord's entrusted me, but here's gonna be the giving that I'm gonna do, and the Lord is gonna have to figure this thing out. We're about to go on a journey of me trusting the Lord to get us there. That is sacrificial giving. Sacrificial giving is risky giving. It's giving in such a way where it leads us out into the deep waters of faith. That is sacrificial giving. If you want an image of like sacrificial giving, um, we've probably all had friends in our life who have bought too much house for their budget. You know that moment? They've just bought too much house. Now, what happens when they buy, you know, more house than they can, they can really afford? What happens in that moment? In that moment, Every other thing in their life is governed by this house that is too big for their britches. This house becomes the driver's seat, you know, it sits in the driver's seat of their life. Everything else is in the passenger seats. Everything else is taking orders from this main thing. Now, if you want a picture of what sacrificial giving looks like, it is the moment when it's not a house, it's not a car, it's not, none of those things sit in the driver's seat for us, but our giving is in the driver's seat. Our giving is the thing that is bigger than our britches, beyond our budget. And everything else in our life is now shaped around and formed around this thing of generosity. See, sacrificial giving, this is when you know you've hit the, the moment of sacrificial giving. It's when every other thing in your life is governed by your giving. That's, that's the moment of sacrificial giving. Now, if you want a biblical kind of example of this, Luke 21, I think, is probably the best place to see this. And I'll just recount the story. You can read the first three verses anytime. So here's how the story goes. Jesus is watching people give. Now that's a sobering thought. Jesus knows these things, right? He's watching people give. And he's watching um, people that, that would be considered just having some means to them. If we live in a suburban context in America, we would fit in the general category of that. So he's watching these people give and they're dropping, they're dropping gifts in the basket. I mean, they are making it rain in this thing. But it elicits no response from Jesus. Jesus is just watching it and there's no response from him. And then all of a sudden, this little lady, this poor widow, the, the most vulnerable in her society, this little widow comes up and all she has is two coins. 
She doesn't have like two coins in her pocket and then she's got like a bank account she's going to run to tomorrow to kind of get what she needs. It's like she's got two coins. And she comes to the offering basket and she drops the two coins in the basket. And in that moment, Jesus stops everything and he celebrates that moment. He points that moment out as faith. He commends her faith. He commends that sort of giving. And that is not a percentage issue. That's a sacrifice issue. He's looking at that moment and saying, that's what I'm after. Do you see the sacrifice that is embedded into that moment of giving for this lady, for this widow? That's what we're after. See, in the New Testament, the percentage and the amount is not where it's at. In the New Testament, the sacrifice is where it's at. Now, let me just kind of clarify what it, you know, there's a difference between those two things. Let me clarify the difference. Sacrifice is not, is not dependent upon how much you give. Sacrifice is dependent upon how much is left after you give. Does that make sense? Sacrifice is dealing with that. This is why the, the amount and percentage is not the big thing. Because by the amount and percentage, we ha- there's no clue as if that's sacrifice or not. Sacrifice has everything to do with how much is left when it's all said and done. And that is what Jesus is after. He is saying, let's find the line of sacrifice. You see the Macedonian Christians? That is what I want in giving. This is where I want to, this is where I want to move you. This is where I want to urge you toward. This is where I want to compel you toward. So that begs the questions for us to answer. This is just a good moment for you to look at your own life here. Would you consider that the way that you're operating with your generosity is sacrificial? Is it below your ability, according to your ability, or beyond your ability, actually requiring faith? Is it sacrificial, the the way that you give? Is it requiring faith? And listen, these are discipleship questions. These are like right at the center of what you think about you, what you think about life, and what you think about God. These questions matter for all of that. Now, what, what typically comes up in this moment is people want to have some sort of a framework for, well, how much should I give then? And let me just clarify, I don't know. I don't know what that, where that line is for you. But, I, but let me just try to help build some of the framework for you getting to like where that line of sacrifice is in your life. You know, for many, 10%, kind of the tithe idea, for many, that is going to be a good place to start. If you view sacrificial generosity as a bike that we're riding, so just follow the metaphor here. Sacrificial generosity is the bike that we're, we're, the Lord is saying, get on the bike and let's ride that bike together. If that's the bike, then 10% or a tithe can function like training wheels to kind of help us get our feel on the bike of sacrifice. But wouldn't we all say it's weird if you saw a 34-year-old guy riding a bike with training wheels? That would be weird, wouldn't it? I mean, we would look at that and all think that is not, that, that shouldn't be happening. And I think the same idea is true with giving in the Bible. Although a tenth, 10%, is like a great starting point, that is typically not an ending point for, for where giving should go, right? That, that is a place just to get our feel on the bike of like, where is that line? And, and here are good questions that, to help you kind of get a, 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 you know, a framework and a grid to think through that. I mean, think about questions like this. Am I giving to the point where it is deeply cutting into my daily life? Am I giving to a point that it actually, when I give, it is requiring faith? That the way that I give is pushing me out into the deep waters of faith and trust in Jesus? Am I giving in such a way where my heart is consistently reminded that God really is what I need? He really is where life is found. Am I giving in such a way that reminds me of all of those things? I mean, it, it's interesting. I, I think one of the major kind of things that pops us in, uh, you know, up in any of us when we think about giving is a statement like this, but I just can't afford to give. And I think what most of us mean by that statement is we can't afford to give without it costing us something. And ironically, that's exactly what Jesus wants. It's exactly where he's taking us all. It's exactly what sacrificial giving is walking us into. I love how C.S. Lewis said this. And this will be on the screen for you. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. So I can't tell you where that line is. That's something you're going to have to be wrestling with the Lord about. But listen to what he goes on to say. He says, I am afraid the only safe rule. So if you want a framework for how to think about where is that line of sacrificial giving. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. Like where it actually begins to cut and cost. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, and amusements, and etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. 
If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we would like to do, should like to do, but cannot do because our charities or our generosity excludes them. I think that's a helpful paragraph to think about. Just to consider, where is that line of generosity? I want you to turn to page 26 in your all-in booklet really quickly. Page 26 in your booklet. Let me just point out one thing. This is just going to be homework from this sermon that I'm going to ask everyone in here to do. On page 26, you're going to see the the start of a little section called the all-in journey. And the all-in journey is just a, it's a simple discipleship tool where it just walks through five categories of giving. Five categories that you might find yourself in in terms of giving. And I want you just to read through, all, as homework, to read through all five of those categories. You know, it starts with initial giver, then goes to consistent giver, and just goes on down through it. Just read all five of those categories and what it means to be in that category, th- those sort of things. And then I want you to ask yourself two questions. So you read through that section and then ask yourself two questions. Question number one, where would I put myself in, that, in those categories? Where would I most firmly kind of see myself if I'm having to place myself into one of them? And secondly, ask yourself this question what would be the next two or three or four action steps if I'm wanting to grow in generosity that I would want to take on? What would be the next two or three things the Lord would be asking of me to grow me in my generosity so I can excel in this gift of giving? What would be the two or three concrete action steps in those areas? So if you'll do that for homework, I would so appreciate that. I think it would be, I think it would be very fruitful if you would give just a 15 to 20 minute little section of your life over the next week to, to that. So read through that section, answer those two questions. Where am I and what would concrete action steps look like? So we learn so far that Christians give. Secondly, that Christians give sacrificially. Here's the third thing that we learn, that Christians give joyfully. Look at verse three again. And th- these two verses are an am- just amazing. They just have such amazing things embedded into them. Verse three, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, And they gave beyond their means. I mean, they are giving sacrificially. The numbers don't add up for them. Of, and listen to this next statement, of their own accord, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. I mean, they're saying, will you please just give us an opportunity to give in such a way where it's going to cut deeply into our daily life? Will you please, don't pass me on this, please give me a chance to do that. Would you please? Isn't that crazy? Um, years ago, I had a buddy who his, the, the church family he was a part of, they had begun a generosity initiative, much like we're doing here. They, they'd started a generosity initiative. He calls me on the opening day of that initiative, and man, cynicism is just running rampant in him. So it's, man, all they want's our money. Man, what are these people doing? I can't believe they'd ask for these sort of things. I mean, all of those sort of predictable questions, he is just asking. And I remember listening to him in that moment thinking, man, I felt everything that you're feeling. I've had every one of those thoughts come up in my own heart along the journey of these sorts of things. So, man, I'm like, man, I, I get it, man. I've been there. I've asked those things. My heart has gone to those sort of places in moments like this. And I would just assume that across a church family like this, many of your hearts have done that, have, have, have had those same sort of questions kind of pop up in you, that cynicism rise up in you. Now, and kind of what we did on the phone that day, I just want to do with you. We just processed through, like, what, what is down underneath our cynicism? Why is it that that so quickly pops up in us in these sort of moments? And I think there are two primary reasons. Let me just give these two reasons to you for you to kind of think through. Reason number one, and I want to own this, is that pastors can be crazy. That is very possible. Like, one of the things that I hate about calling myself a pastor is that the, the moment that I say I'm a pastor, I am now in the whole category of people called pastors, right? And part of the people in this category of pastors do crazy things, like look at their people and say, I need a $70 million jet, let's get about that. That's crazy. And there's all sorts of kind of lesser forms of that. And now I just want to have a moment with some of you in the room. Some of your cynicism is rooted in just seeing it go really poorly, just seeing things like this happen. And if that's you, on just behalf of the category of pastors here, I just want to look at you and say, I'm so sorry for that. If you've been in a context where those sorts of crazy things have gone on, I am so, so sorry. So that that could be one kind of issue with our cynicism. It could be rooted in crazy pastors doing crazy things. But here is where I think the wide majority of us sit when it comes to the roots of our cynicism. It's not in crazy pastorville. It's in our own idolatry. I think that's where most of it comes from. 
So, you know, it's so interesting. Anytime I'm going to talk about money and possessions, I just know that is always going to stir up weird things in people. That cynicism, those sort of like resistant barriers, those are just going to instantly fly up inside of people. I just know that's a part of preaching on money and possessions. And I think a part of what's happening there is our culture is so deeply ingrained into like looking to money and possessions for life that most of us don't even realize when we're looking to money and possessions for life and not Jesus. So anytime we talk about money and possessions, it's gonna instantly have a way when we're looking to money and possessions for life, it's gonna instantly have a way of bringing up all sorts of weird things in our heart. Now, we're not only preaching on money and possessions right now, but we're also saying we have a really important season in front of us that's really about to set the stage for the next 20 or 30 years of gospel ministry. And we're asking you to give very generously toward that. So I just know that with both of those two things combined, all sorts of crazy stuff stirs up in our heart. Now, okay, now just look at me here. If that is you, if you've had cynicism, if you've had those sort of hard questions, how oh, could they, what are they doing? If that anger just wells up in you, just at the thought of these things, man, what a great opportunity the Lord has given you. When we talk about money and possessions, in particular in this generosity initiative, what a great opportunity the Lord has given you to get that cynicism and those questions inside of good community and for you to take those to the Lord and to ask the Lord, will you show me what's underneath those things? Will you show me what's there? Will you, will you give me eyes to see my heart in such a way where I can see what, what are those things coming from in me? And, and let me just clarify that this point. Oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, cynicism is a defense mechanism we use to protect the things we really don't want disturbed in our life. Most often in our life. So not all the time, but most often when we feel really cynical about things, it's defense mechanisms that instantly just flare up inside of our heart. We get offended at it. We get really critical. We get all, that defense mechanism flies up in our heart, and it's oftentimes a defense mechanism to protect those things in our life that we just don't want those things rattled. And when money and possessions is in that place of like, we don't want it rattled, any sort of talk about these sort of things that rattles that cage has those really big time emotions flare up instantly. So what a great opportunity for, for you to take those things to the Lord. Now, I'll just tell you how that conversation with my friend played out. We're talking on the phone. We read this passage in 2 Corinthians 8, verses three and four. And, and we just read through that, that little passage of, of the Macedonians begging to be able to give. I mean, like Paul comes around and says, here's a need. And they're like, please don't, I know we're poor, but don't pass us up on this thing. And he's like, man, I, I think I should begin to pray that the Lord would give me that heart. That when I see a need or when a need is presented to me, that the Lord would give me that sort of a begging heart. That sort of a heart that would love to step into needs, to give things away for the causes and concerns of Jesus. Man, and I just think many of us in the room could use a healthy correction for that that we could probably all use looking at verses three and four in 2 Corinthians 8 and ask the Lord, would you please give me that kind of a heart? That kind of a heart that would just be a begging giver, that would love to give so much that we would seek it earnestly, that sort of a heart. And, and I, I love their heart. Look at it again in verses three and four. It says, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for, for the favor of taking part. Later on, Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, just one page over probably for you, one chapter over. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, he says, each one must give as he has decided in his own heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, God is not just wanting you to give. If he did, he would just say give, but he doesn't just say give. He, he doesn't, he's not just concerned about the act of obedience. He wants a certain kind of obedience, not just any obedience, but a certain kind. It's not just giving, it's giving that flows from the right heart, a heart that is doing that joyfully and cheerfully. That's what God is after. Now hear me on this. And that is the sort of generosity that Jesus makes possible. Not just we're giving, but no, we're like the Macedonians, we're begging for the opportunity to give. Jesus makes that kind of giving possible in our lives. And let me just give you three quick reasons why giving can be a joyful, cheerful thing for you. Why it is that giving should be cheerful? Three quick things. Number one, first reason why it can be a joyful, cheerful thing <coughs> is that giving glorifies God. <coughs> Every time you give, you are saying to the world, God is more precious than money and possessions. I prize Jesus more highly than I prize these things. 
Every time you give, you're saying that about God. You're glorifying God every time that you give. Giving glorifies God. Secondly, giving is good for you. The Bible, 2,350 verses, addresses money and possessions. Many of those sound the warnings of just how dangerous money and possessions are, how seductive they can be of luring our heart away from Jesus and to them. And every time you give, it's good for you because you're reminding your heart that your life is not found in money and possessions, but your life is found in Jesus. Every time you give, you're reminding yourself of that. It's good for you in that way. You're reminding yourself, my life is found in God, not things. And thirdly, giving is good for God's mission. It's good for God's mission. If I'm just saying it as clearly and as bluntly as I can, God's mission requires money. Always has, always will. It requires money. And hear me on this. Jesus has set it up that way. That that is an intentional thing by God. Now, why would Jesus set it up that way? Well, if Matthew 6 is true, that our heart really does follow our treasure, like when we give, our heart follows what we give. If that's true, wouldn't it make sense that God would require his mission to to have money? I mean, wouldn't that be true? So so God sets it up in a way that says, the mission's going to require money. If we're going to do this thing, it's going to require money. And so we as God's people now get to give toward that mission. And when we give, our hearts are pulled into that mission with Jesus. I mean, I think it's kind of an ingenious thing that God has done for my heart and for your heart. That when we give, it's just pulling our heart more and more into the causes and concerns of Jesus. So what do you do if you're sitting here and you're like, man, my heart is just not there. My heart is not in a joyful, cheerful place when it comes to giving. Here would be my quick response to that. There's a two-part answer. Part one is you still obey Jesus. You still give. Giving is a matter of obedience. It's not just a matter of like, if I want to, if I don't. It's a matter of obedience. So we still obey Jesus but we don't just obey Jesus. Here's the second part of the answer. As we're obeying Jesus and recognizing that our heart is not where it should be, we don't have a joyfulness connected to our giving, we repent of a lack of joyfulness that should be there. And we seek the Lord, we ask the Lord, and we trust the Lord to reconnect joy with our generosity. So yes, we go about giving, but we don't just give. We ask the Lord, we repent, ask the Lord to connect these things together, that we would be joyful, cheerful givers as we open up our hands to the Lord. Here's the fourth thing we learn about money and possessions and about Christians' kind of interaction with them. Number four, that Christians give deliberately. Christians give deliberately. Look at verse three. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and they gave beyond their means, sacrificially, of their own accord. It's cheerful, begging us earnestly. I mean, they they are just pleading for the opportunity. For what? What are they begging us earnestly for? For the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. So think about what's happened here. Paul is looking at the Corinthian church and he's saying, there is a legitimate need in front of us. And, you, and I'm calling you toward, I'm casting vision for it. And I'm calling you, Corinthian church, to open up your hands and your life. And I'm calling you to give toward that. Now, in the same way, I think any pastor has a Paul-like role for their church family to cast compelling vision for their people, that their people, the church family around this, should be willing, that they should step into and get behind. I think that's part of the role that a pastor has. So I just want to take a few moments to clarify what the next two years are doing. Why it is that we're calling you towards sacrificial generosity for the next two years? So there's three components to this. Number one, cultivate ministry. Part of what the giving is going to go to over the next two-year season is going to go toward cultivating ministry. Cultivating ministry is the ongoing work of disciple-making that's happening at Stonegate. And I want you just to have a moment where you're encouraged by that. The Lord is doing really, really great things among us. Really, really good things. I mean, men and women are are being saved by Jesus, being rescued by Jesus. If you were here at our last baptism um, Sunday, then you got to see great stories of the Lord like reaching down into the muck and mire of a person's life and rescuing them. He is transferring his heart for racial reconciliation into people. He's giving his heart for adoption and and the care of the orphan into people. He is saving marriages, sustaining singles. If you could just go sit in on our preschool children and and, uh, student ministry, you would see the Lord taking little guys, like little preschoolers, children, our students, and you would see them making, God in this church family, making disciples out of our kids. You would see all of those things going down. You would see equipping happening. You would see people meeting Jesus and maturing in Jesus. All of those things are happening at Stonegate right now, and you're involved in that. 
You're in the middle of that. You're caught up in those things. Man, I want you to be encouraged by that. The Lord is really using your labor, Stonegate Church. So it's going to go to the ongoing work of cultivating ministry. Here's the second thing it's going to go to, is to plant the gospel. So over the next two years, we are going to be in, a, in the middle of a sending season. We're going to be sending people. Um, thus far in our six-year history, we have been a part of planting 16 churches. We've played some sort of role in the planting of 16. Over the next couple of years, we want to be involved in more. One of those is going to come right from our church family as Valentine leaves to plant a church. But this is like part of what this two-year season is going to be about. It's going to be about supporting and sending people, sending church plants. Now, let me just kind of clue you into why it is that we think church planting is so important for our church family. I think it's a massive part of fulfilling the Great Commission, but I want to just kind of get down on the ground with you and give you a visible kind of illustration of why it's so important. When we are growing as just our church family, Stonegate, we are growing by addition. So like Stonegate Church, last week we had about 900 people here, a little over 900 people. And that is great. I mean, over six years, the Lord has taken us from zero to over 900. I mean, that's a really a work of the Lord. He's been so kind to us. But as we grow, we grow by addition. So we add another, we add another, we add another. It's growing by addition. But when we plant churches, we are growing and advancing the kingdom of God by multiplication. We're doing a different kind of math. We are out of addition math and we are into multiplication math. So just do the math here, just with me here. So if we were you know, involved in planting 50 or 60 churches, let's just say 50 over the next 10 to 15 years, we are not, we're no longer doing the addition problem, we're doing the, the multiplication problem. If 50 churches, let's just say they average 400 people, 50 churches planted averaging 400 people, that equals 20,000 people. Do you see what just happened there? We got into multiplication really quickly. And I'm just saying, when I think of 20,000 people, I'm like, I can give my life and my money to that. I'm in on that. I love that. That's why church planting is so important for us. But part of what it means to plant the gospel is also going to be orphan care. The, the, I mean, the Lord is doing so many wonderful things in our church family and just giving a burden for this particular issue. But I have just conversations all the time with our people on just taking steps in that direction of what is it going to mean for our life, our family, our money, all of these things to care for the orphan. Such great things happening there as our family steps into caring for the least of these. So all of those sort of things are going to be supported in the next two years with your generosity. And thirdly is to put down roots. So cultivate ministry, plant the gospel, and to put down roots. Now, if you have been here since the early days of Stonegate, you know that we have always known that the conference center is a temporary home that there was going to be a day where we had to move out of the conference center. That day for us, the city has made it clear, is going to be September of 2018. On September of 2018, we will officially be homeless. And unless we just want to be homeless, we're going to have to do something about that. If we want to have a place together, we're going to have to do something about that. So we've known from day one that that moment is coming. So we have saved aggressively. We have planned aggressively. We have done everything we can do over the course of six years to make this, a, 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 this leap doable and possible for this church family. But I want you to see what is at stake over this two-year season. As we think about a future facility for this church family, what is at stake here? Many churches are going to have a $30,000, $100,000 a month payment onto a building. So, and I'm looking at Stonegate Church and saying, we don't have to do any of that. This two-year season, in a very real way, sets up for us the next 20, 30, 40, however long the Lord sees fit of gospel ministry for this church family. This two-year season sets up all of that where we don't have to pay toward a building monthly for all of those sorts of things, but we can take what would normally be going to a building for so many churches and be using that to advance God's mission outside of our church family. Now, wouldn't we all love that? I mean, wouldn't we all be in on that? And so I'm just saying this two-year season right here sets the stage for all of that. It is setting the trajectory of how all of those things are about to go for the next 20, 30, 40 years of gospel ministry for this church family. This season is that crucial and that important. It's that, that key to our future as a church family. Now, in light of that, when you're thinking about deliberate giving and what that's going to look like for your family, March 6th is a very big day for us. March 6th, you know, in any church family, there are days when you look back over it, there are certain days that are defining moments in a church family. March 6th is going to be one of those days for us. It's the day where we're all going to take our commitment and we're going to make that to the Lord. We're going to take like, what is that number that's going to represent sacrificial 
glad-hearted generosity towards Stonegate for the next two years. And we're going to all bring that together on that morning. And we're going to turn those into the Lord and turn those over to the Lord. We're going to make that commitment to the Lord. It's going to be a great day. It's a day that you, if this is your church family, you don't want to miss that day. It's going to be a great day in our history. Now, in light of that, I want to take a moment to explain the commitment card that we gave out with the booklet. And we'll have more here on March 6th, but I just want to give you a fill. And, and there is also a page in your booklet that shows you this commitment card. But I want to take a second to explain a couple of things on it. There's two things. On the back of the card, you'll see a gift chart that looks like that. And that gift chart is just illustrating one way that as a church family, we can get to $6 million, which was our goal over the next two years. It's just one way that the Lord could use our church family to, to do that. And I have found personally that it has been very helpful to take that gift chart out. You can also find it in your book. To take that gift chart out and to use it as a way to pray, to get clarity on what would the Lord have from me and my family? What would the Lord have from Laura and I? What would he want from us over this next two-year period? And so what we have done is we just come to that gift card and saying, God, you can surprise us. You have permission. It's all yours. You have permission to surprise us. Wherever you would have us land on that card, we will say yes to it. You just have to make that clear. And I think the Lord might really use that as a helpful way for you to get clarity on what generosity is going to look like in your life over the next two years. So that's the gift chart. On the inside of the card, um, we tried to serve all the engineers in our church family by giving you like a systematic way to kind of get to a two-year number. So if you, you know, on the inside of the card, you have these sort of slots over here that just kind of help you process through how would, how would we get to a two-year generosity kind of commitment. And so on the left side, it starts with what do I normally give? That's the top left blank. Then you add on to that, what would be my expanded goal for this two-year season, like, or this one-year season? Like, what would it be that I would want to do annually on top of what would be my normal annual giving? And then you would add those up, and that would be your annual giving for one year. Then you would multiply that times two. That's for the times two because it's not a one-year generosity initiative. It's a two-year generosity initiative. So that would be a times two would get you to a two-year commitment. Then you can think through, what are the stored assets that the Lord's already given me? So you'd process through what, what would the Lord want of those in this particular season. You would add those together, and that would get you to a two-year commitment. Now, if you're like not the engineer type, if you're like, man, all those lines kind of made me go crazy, um, that's no problem. If it's not helpful for you, just skip all of that. The key thing we all have to get to is that bottom area. That is your two-year commitment. Like, what, what does the Lord want from me over the next two years? That's the blank that at the end of the day is showing, this is what I feel like the Lord wants from me. And I, I'm just saying this as a church family, let's pray, let's fast, let's seek clarity from the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to talk to us. Let's open up our hands to the Lord and say, God, whatever it is that you want, you get to make the call. Whatever it is that you want, I'm in for that. That's happening on March the 6th. Last thing, and then we're done. Number five, Christians and giving. The last thing we learn here. Christians give in response to grace. Number five. Christians give in response to grace. Look at verses one and two again. Paul says, we want you to know, brethren, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. There has been grace given in those churches. Here's what it's produced. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I mean, just look at those two verses and ask yourself the question. How does severe test of affliction, abundance of joy, extreme poverty, and wealth of generosity. How do all of those things fit into two verses? There is only one explanation for that, and it's the grace of God. The, the grace of God is the foundational thing underneath 2 Corinthians 8 and 2 Corinthians 9. In those two chapters, grace is mentioned seven times in those two chapters. Grace is foundational to our giving. Maybe you could think of the logic of the passage like this. The grace of God produces generosity in his people. It is the grace of God. God just pouring out his grace on us that opens up our hands so that God's people can then be generous. That's how it always works. God glorifying generosity always starts with grace. I love how Randy Alcorn puts it. He says, where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. I love that. That's so true. Where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. Your internal grasp of the gospel, like how you get it deep down in here, will always show itself in the outward work of generosity. Now, if you're looking at this passage and you're saying, well, what does the grace of God look like? What does it look like? Verse 8 is the answer to that. Look at 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, chapter 8, verse 9. 
Verse 9 is the answer. What does the grace of God look like in this passage? What is the grace of God that has visited the Macedonian church? Here's the answer, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's grace. Grace is God Almighty saying, I am going to give the life of my only son, my beloved son. That is grace. See, if you want to differentiate the God of the Bible from every other God that people worship, here's the differentiation. God is a giver. Our God is a giver. The God of the Bible is a giver. Every other God that people worship is a taker. Our God gives his beloved son sacrificially. It's his son deliberately, to, to, he both had our salvation planned and accomplished in the giving of his son. He gives his son cheerfully. Um, Isaiah chapter 53 says, it was God's will, it pleased the Lord to crush him. Why? So that he would not have to crush you and I. This is the grace of God. The grace of God is God in the flesh, God Jesus, coming down to this earth, wrapping on human flesh, living a perfect life, dying on the third day, or dying, you know, just a painful, bloody death, rising from the dead on the third day. That is grace. That is grace. I mean, if you want to think about grace, it is Jesus in the wealth and the comforts of heaven, leaving all of that for the rags of this earth. And Jesus, God Almighty, finding us in our poverty, finding us in our rags, and then in him, us becoming rich. That's grace. And it's when we see and sit in that grace, when we begin to realize we are actually rich in Jesus. That, that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It's when we begin to grab a hold of that that we begin to turn loose of money and possessions and generosity begins to flow. We're gonna end this message by you looking at a video of this right here, this sort of generosity playing itself out.
How about we pray together? Gosh, what a powerful story, huh? Just reading or watching that story this week, I just had this moment after watching it of, God, could you please just let me borrow a little of their faith right now? And I don't know what your journey is going to look like over this season. It doesn't have to look like the messengers, but I know the Lord has a journey for you. And the only way we get to that journey is by opening up our hands and allowing the Lord to make the calls and then for us to respond in obedience. Whatever that looks like. So I'm just asking now for the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful from the day, for you to feel deep in your bones the things the Spirit wants you to feel. What would it look like for you to open up your hands? everything in your life open, everything you have before the Lord and for you to trust Jesus to make the call, for you to, for you to trust him to do what's good. I just want to give you a moment with the Lord here where you can just affirm to him, if, and that's what I want, God, and if there's fear, for you to be able to take those fears to him. And for many of us, this is going to be a great time for us to to come before the Lord and confess and repent of things that need to be confessed and repented of. Maybe it's that that you haven't been giving. And that's an obedience issue. Maybe it's you haven't been giving sacrificially. The Lord's clarifying some of those things for you. Maybe it's you haven't been giving from a cheerful spot. The Lord's not just interested in our giving. He wants a cheerfulness and a joy to go with it. So so maybe today it's like, yeah, I'm going to give, but God, I'm just repenting and confessing that I don't feel about giving like you would want. God, help me to be like those Macedonians and, and begging for those opportunities. So, Father, would you please press down into us what you would want us to take from today? God, will you teach us? Will you warn us? Will you shepherd us this morning in this moment? God, will you help us to see eternity clearly? God, will you help us to know that we're all going to be before you one day much sooner than we would think? God, would you give us those sort of eyes? And there are some in the room who... Your first step of obedience to Jesus is not in giving money and possessions. Your first step of obedience is in giving you. There's never been a moment where you've pushed your life all in with Jesus. This is what faith is in the Bible. It's turning from our sin and throwing our entire life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And if that's never happened in your life, like this is the moment. Like today is your day for that to trust Jesus, to push your life across the line. If so, we would love to hear about it. You can meet our guys over at the prayer table. We would love to celebrate that with you and begin to walk with you in that. So Father, would you help us today? God, would you help make us cheerful, sacrificial, big, glad-hearted givers? And God, would you help us see that that's all in response to your grace toward us, your overwhelming generosity toward us. And it's in your good name that we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.